Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. David Vine is professor of anthropology at American University and the author of Base Nation, Island of Shame, and his newest book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. David, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Trey. My pleasure, David. So this book examines the U.S. and its perpetual wars by looking at the infrastructure that made these wars possible. Why is this such an important facet in understanding the issue? It's an overlooked facet, this now huge collection of military bases that the United States maintains abroad bases that the United States maintains outside of U.S. territory. They now number around 800 bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C. And this has actually been a long-term pattern in U.S. history. I was initially in my earlier research focused on the present day, on, on the current collection of U.S. military bases that now quite literally encircle the globe. But as I conducted more research now over 19 years, I realized that this was not a phenomenon unique to the post-World War II period. It's not unique to the present moment. But instead, the United States government has been building bases abroad, extraterritorial military bases, since independence. That, of course, the first bases abroad were bases, U.S. Army forts, built on the lands of Native American peoples and nations. And these Army forts, these bases abroad, were critical to the expansion and conquest of the original 13 states across the North American continent, a process that, of course, included the colonization of Native American peoples and, of course, the deaths of millions and displacement of tens of millions. And I began to realize that bases, and specifically bases abroad, were an underestimated and generally overlooked part of an entire system of war that the United States government has created, in effect, since independence, and that the bases abroad have actually helped perpetuate the system and entrench this system of war, of imperialist war, of expansionist war, in ways that help explain why the United States has been fighting wars practically without cessation from independence to the present. How often has the U.S. been at war since its founding in 1776, and how often is this a result of the U.S. going on the offensive? Indeed, the offensive nature of almost all U.S. wars and other forms of combat is an important dimension of this larger pattern. Bases abroad are frequently portrayed by U.S. leaders as defensive in nature, but the track record, the history shows that when you build a base outside your own territory, and this is not unique to the United States, this is true of other empires and world powers, these bases tend to be offensive in nature. They tend to be launch pads for further wars. And what we've seen in U.S. history is frequently that the construction of bases abroad has not just enabled war, and this is a, a central part of my argument, not just made war possible, but actually made future wars more likely, such that 
the U.S. government has built bases abroad, which have then enabled later wars, which have led to the construction of more military bases abroad, which have led to more wars, which have led to more bases, which have led to more wars in a continuing pattern. You write early on about your modern-day visit to the infamous Gitmo, but who is Cristobal Colon, and what is his connection to that area and Guantanamo Bay? This was another surprising part of my research over the past 19 years when I had a chance to visit Guantanamo Bay, the naval base, on two occasions, a chance to visit both the prison that, of course, has attracted so much attention and so much criticism, as well as the rest of the military base, which is actually far, far larger. The the prison itself takes up a very small part of a base that's actually about the size of Washington, D.C. Cristobal Colon is, of course, the only name that the person that most people in the United States know as and refer to as Christopher Columbus. It's the only name that we know he actually used. He, of course, was an individual sailing on behalf of the Spanish Empire. We believe he was born in Genoa. There was no Italy when he was sailing. Today, the city of Genoa is, of course, located in Italy, and Italians have tended to claim Cologne. But it occurred to me in the course of my research, wait, why do we call him Christopher Columbus? This is not his name. How many other historical figures are there who we refer to by names that they were not given? Why has this name been anglicized? I have not been able to come up with many other examples outside of religious figures, Hmm. which I think speaks to the sort of religious uh, connection or uh, spiritual almost connection that U.S. leaders, again, especially, but others in the United States have, have developed with this person who never even set foot on U.S. soil or what became U.S. soil. He sailed to the islands of the Caribbean including to Guantanamo Bay, which was another surprising thing I I learned when I visited Guantanamo Bay. I saw one of the yearbooks of the military base. It's it's almost like a college or high school or camp that has annual yearbooks. And one of them celebrated the arrival of this person in the United States, we refer to as Columbus, celebrated his arrival in 1494, which then led me to do some research and and realize that indeed he, on his second voyage to the Americas, arrived in Guantanamo Bay. And it seemed quite telling to me that the base, this now infamous base, would celebrate the arrival of Columbus, nor a coincidence entirely that Columbus arrived in this strategically important base. This then helped me to see some of the longer term patterns that the United States' history of war is part of, that the United States' history of war, this history of almost unceasing war from 1776 to the present, has grown out of a longer history of European imperialism, of a longer series of European empires' wars in the Americas, and actually out of European wars in Europe itself. The religious wars of the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries are also important context. But the history of European imperialism in the Americas is the direct history out of which U.S. imperialism grows. Uh, And you asked before, and I, I think I didn't provide a full answer, you asked me to detail the U.S. history 
of war. And according to my research, which builds on our annual report put out by the Congressional Research Service, the United States government has been engaged in a war or some form of combat in every year of, of U.S. history, with the exception of 11. So about 95% of the years in U.S. history, the U.S. military has been fighting either a war or been engaged in some other form of combat. That is a mind-blowing figure. And Cologne's arrival in the Americas also marked the beginning of a gross mistreatment of the indigenous peoples. And we'll certainly get to more of that here in just a minute. But first off, I wanted to ask you about the Revolutionary War. People may have not put two and two together from learning about the Revolutionary War in middle school or high school or even in college, but the Revolutionary War is a result of foreign bases and British soldiers' violent treatment of people living in the colonies. How soon after that war ended did the U.S. set up those first foreign bases, as you've already mentioned, in the non-colony territories and lands that were not owned necessarily, but operated on by the Native American peoples? Great questions. The United States, during the War of Independence, during the war with Great Britain to establish its independence, was fighting Native American peoples at the same time and building military bases to wage those wars, building bases on the edges of the colonies and then increasingly outside the colonies. Indeed, as you mentioned, the establishment of foreign military bases on what became U.S. soil, that is by the British military, was actually one of the motivations and inspirations for the movement toward U.S. independence. It was the presence of foreign bases and foreign troops, British bases, British troops on American soil that inspired many of the revolutionaries, in addition to other complaints. But you can see this in the Declaration of Independence, the identification of foreign bases and the presence of foreign troops on U.S. soil, what became U.S. soil, as part of the justification for declaring independence and severing the connection to Great Britain. Meanwhile, shortly after that Declaration of Independence, you see the revolutionaries and then the fully independent new nation after 1783 establishing a growing number of U.S. bases, U.S. Army forts, on an increasing swath of the Americas, of North America, of Native American peoples, Native American nations' lands. Was war with the Native Americans inevitable, or was that something that could have been avoided? It was absolutely not inevitable. None of the wars in U.S. history were inevitable. History, for that matter, is never inevitable. Sometimes it can appear that way, especially when we see such a consistent pattern of war, for example, in U.S. history, this pattern in which the United States has been fighting in, in almost every year of its history. But there were choices. U.S. leaders, U.S. politicians, U.S. elites made choices to go to war. Wars are never inevitable. And there were examples and cases in which U.S. leaders chose not to go to war. One early one, when the U.S. government declared war on Britain again in what we refer to as the War of 1812, there was actually a vote in Congress to declare war on France as well. And that vote failed by just a few votes, but was an example actually of anti-war opposition in Congress. And there are other examples that I try to highlight in my book, The United States of War, 
to show that history is not inevitable, that these wars were not inevitable, that there were frequently anti-war movements opposed to individual wars and opposed to wars more broadly. And part of that, I think, is important because it's important to emphasize that we have choices today. There are, of course, powerful politicians and other elites who have a disproportionate ability to influence the U.S. choices about going to war or not going to war. But there are choices to be made that people of all stripes can influence. And, and an important part of my book is an argument that this pattern of war needs to change, that we need to bring this pattern of war to an end, that we need to shift the United States from being a United States of war to a United States of peace, a country dedicated to avoiding war at all costs. And as I explained toward the end of the book, this is especially the case given the disastrous record of wars the United States has been waging since 9-11. We've all heard of the Lewis and Clark expedition before, but what was their original goal and did they accomplish it? I think the short answer is they accomplished it. What often gets overlooked when the Lewis and Clark expedition gets discussed is that this was a military expedition. It's sort of portrayed as an example of, I don't know, the hardiness of U.S. explorers and the great courage of U.S. adventurers. But this was a military expedition that very much had military goals in mind. Although what is important to note, or another thing that's important to note, is the way that military and commercial ends and goals were very much intertwined. This was a surveying expedition for military purposes, but also to survey economic opportunities, opportunities in the fur trade, timber, other natural resources, and the establishment and scouting of locations for military bases and military installations of various kinds, well, it was also at the heart of this expedition. Then paved the way, almost literally, opened up ground for Euro-American colonization clear across the continent. While the War of 1812 is recognizable by name, I couldn't tell you many, if any, details. What are the most important things to know about this clash? Yeah, it was the same way. I surely learned something in elementary school, middle school, high school, but remembered very little. And most of what I remembered was that there was this strange battle after the war had formally ended in which Andrew Jackson achieved some great victory over his British opponents in New Orleans. And it was sort of a quirky matter because the battle occurred two weeks after the peace agreement had been signed between U.S. and British representatives because of this low pace of communications at the time. There's many things to be said about this, including the fact that so often depictions of war focus on the heroes and the victors like Jackson, and of course, don't focus on the tremendous and totally unnecessary death that was represented in New Orleans, that this battle was fought for absolutely no reason, and how many people died, how many people were injured, how many people were displaced from their homes. This doesn't get discussed in most history texts. That's precisely with that in mind, I wanted to write this book about the history of U.S. wars in a very different way that puts the human toll of war at the center 
Similarly, for the war we refer to as the War of 1812, as a whole, this was a war that did not need to happen. This is a war that changed almost nothing between the relationship between the United States and Britain, other than taking the lives of thousands and injuring many, many thousands more. This is a war that, after it was waged, after the war ended, was spun by historians and politicians, U.S. historians and U.S. politicians, as a kind of second war for independence. But this was a war that could have been and should have been avoided and was a tremendous disaster for the United States. It could have actually brought an end to the United States. It was so disastrous from a military perspective. After all, one of the few other things that at least some people know is that Washington, D.C. was burned, that the White House was burned. The reason the White House is called the White House is because the president's mansion was burned and ended up blackened by the fire, which was later painted over in white. But the president and his wife, the Madisons, had to flee Washington. This was unbelievable military disaster where you had British troops returning to Washington, D.C. and marching down the main streets of Washington, D.C. And it was only thanks to later U.S. military engagements that the British finally left. Uh, But this was a a tremendous disaster from every perspective, most of all humanitarian, a human perspective, given the thousands of deaths and, and many thousands more injuries. You just briefly mentioned Andrew Jackson. People may not like to hear this, but he was a pretty awful dude. During, before, and even after his presidency, what is the most glaring example of the type of person that he was? Oh, there are many, sadly. (laughs) Again, in my memory of my high school history texts is that Jackson gets celebrated again, as the sort of birth of Jacksonian democracy, an expansion of democracy to a growing number of white men who weren't just elite, wealthy white men. And, you know, the expansion of democracy is itself clearly a good thing. But Jackson, his record really should be known much more for his role in displacing hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Native Americans from the U.S., Southeast, from what we refer to now as the South, generally, and his role in the, what's called the Trail of Tears, which actually involved many peoples, including the Cherokee, but other Native American peoples who were forced from their homes in the South and from their territories in the South further and further westward. And this was an act carried out in direct contradiction to uh, Supreme Court rulings. Jackson was a killer. As you said, before he even took office, he was known as a vicious killer of Native Americans from Florida to North in South Carolina, Georgia, across the South to Tennessee. And that is much more what his record should be known for, in my mind. Speaking of Native Americans, did they catch a break during the U.S. Civil War? Did uh, the uh, U.S. lay off of Native Americans as they were fighting one another? You would think that might be the case. Sadly, again, the U.S. wars with Native American peoples continued throughout the Civil War. There was essentially one long, unceasing war between the U.S. military and scores of Native American nations and peoples, basically, again, from independence through at least 1896. And 
later in many ways. But during the Civil War, no, the wars with Native American peoples continued. The main people executed during the Civil War were not Confederate generals or Confederate leaders, but instead were Native American Sioux people as a result of a war in the Minnesota territories. In 1898, the U.S. declared war on Spain after it was reported that the Spaniards had blown up a U.S. boat. Was that what really happened? You know, the story of the explosion of the Maine still remains a bit clouded in some uncertainty, but most historians now believe that it was simply an accident, that this naval vessel exploded. But then the explosion provided an excuse for U.S. leaders to launch a war against the Spanish Empire, the crumbling Spanish Empire that then led to seizure of control of the entire island of Cuba, the conquest of Puerto Rico, the conquest of the Philippines, later led to the U.S. acquisition of the island of Guam or Guahan, as the local Chamorro people refer to it as. This was a significant expansion of U.S. territory outside of North America. U.S., of course, didn't formally hold on to Cuba itself the way it did turn Puerto Rico and the Philippines and Guam into colonies. But Cuba, like some other territories in the hemisphere, effectively de facto became a a U.S. colony. The U.S. government, U.S. leaders controlled the Cuban government and established conditions after the war with Spain that severely limited the sovereignty and control and freedom of the Cuban government. One aspect of that was the establishment of the U.S. military base in Guantanamo Bay. And it was done in a way, and this was later changed as a revision of the original treaty, but the U.S. leaders imposed on Cuba the right to establish and maintain a military base at Guantanamo Bay in exchange for what's about $4,000 today in gold on the condition that the lease, the quote-unquote lease between the two governments could only be broken if both governments agreed to breaking the lease, which is not really a lease. Like If I'm renting from my landlord, the landlord can only end the lease if I agree to it. That is not a lease. This is a quote-unquote lease papering over occupation. Guantanamo Bay, in my mind, it's not recognized this way, but is a U.S. colony. This is Cuban territory that is occupied against the will of the Cuban government and most Cuban people. And it has been since before the Cuban Revolution, in fact. This is, in my mind, one of seven U.S. colonies that remain today, at least. The others being Puerto Rico. The Philippines was a colony until 1946. Guam, American Samoa, Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, in addition to Washington, D.C., are the other territories, as they're frequently referred to, that are really colonies and should be referred to as such, in my mind. Island bases and these colonies that the U.S. overtakes become hugely important in the 20th century and beyond with the U.S. empire. What did bird shit and bat guano have to do with an increased U.S. presence and naval power in the Pacific Ocean? Again, conventional histories, other people's understandings about the expansion of the United States usually have it that the United States began expanding outside of North America in 1898 with the war against 
the Spanish Empire that led to the conquest and establishment of colonies in Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, and de facto in Cuba. But we actually see that the U.S. military began establishing bases of various kinds, usually relatively small, outside North America from very early in U.S. history, from early in the 19th century. Mostly naval establishments, small leasehold facilities that the U.S. Navy could operate out of literally around the world, in Africa, and in Europe, in Asia, in South America. Later in the 19th century, there's a growing interest in small islands in particular for several reasons, but one of them was bird and bat shit, known as guano, which is a kind of fertilizer that was critical to agriculture in the 19th century. Small islands, uninhabited islands, were full of this shit and were mined for it. Mining operations were set up, and so we saw U.S. entrepreneurs backed by the U.S. government laying claim to scores of islands in the Pacific, but also in the Caribbean, to mine this fat shit. And increasingly, the U.S. Navy became interested in small islands as well to establish coaling stations to fuel what were then naval vessels fueled by coal. And then increasingly, as the 19th century progresses and moves into the 20th century, there's a growing interest in small islands as communication stations of various kinds. So we see the establishment of military bases outside of North America growing in importance as we move from the 19th into the 20th century all the way up to World War II when we see the greatest expansion in the number of of U.S. military bases abroad. Now we're talking bases of much larger sizes generally than the small island bases for shit mining, (laughs) as it were. We will get to what happened during and after World War II shortly. But prior to that, what was the open door policy that the U.S. started in China in the early 1900s and was then heavily utilized in Latin American countries thereafter? So we can think about U.S. history as being divided, or one way to think about U.S. imperial history in particular, and in my book, begins with the assumption and and shows how the United States was an empire from independence. I explained that 1898 did not represent the beginning of U.S. empire or the start of the U.S. imperial age, as again, many traditional histories have suggested, but instead represented the end of a period of imperial expansion that began with independence began with the expansion of the 13 original states across North America, the conquest and colonization of those territories, and then expanded outside of North America. Again, I point to ways in which the U.S. military in particular had expanded beyond North America from very early in in U.S. history, long before 1898. But after 1898, we see less of an interest on the part of U.S leaders, U.S. politicians, elites, military officials, grow less interested in the acquisition of new colonies and instead in indirect forms of control, of imperial control. And the open door policy was one that was pursued in China in particular, not just by the United States, 
but by European powers that sought to claim small enclaves in China as kinds of bases, both military and commercial bases, to dominate Chinese markets and exploit economic opportunities in China. And this becomes something of a model for U.S. leaders, again, employing indirect economic tools of imperialism in Latin America and other parts of the world to provide opportunities for U.S. businesses, U.S. entrepreneurs, U.S. banks to make money throughout parts of Latin America as well as China and other parts of Asia. And one thing that often gets overlooked when there are discussions of this sort of indirect form of open door imperialism is that it was always undergirded by U.S. military power. Again, this was not the outright conquest of territory and the, the creation of new colonies, but especially in Latin America, the indirect forms of economic imperialism depended on frequent U.S. military invasions of Latin American countries and occupations of Latin American countries, especially Central America. We see year after year after year, the U.S. military invading and, and frequently occupying for decades at a time parts of Latin America in the interest of U.S. businesses, entrepreneurs, other elite interests. Yeah, it was interesting to read about the influence that the U.S. had in Central America, really centralizing things in Honduras and just the impact that that had on the rest of the region. We'll certainly get to that in just a second. I did want to ask about World War II first. What was the destroyers for bases deal between FDR and Churchill, and why is it so important for the U.S. empire? So the destroyers for bases deal really marks the beginning of a new imperial period, a period in which U.S. empire is defined in many ways by the establishment and maintenance of an unprecedented collection of U.S. military bases abroad. Again, the U.S. military maintained bases abroad from independence, but the quantity the breadth, the scope of the U.S. collection of bases abroad reaches unprecedented heights during World War II. The United States acquires and builds a collection of bases larger than any empire or people or nation in world history during World War II. And this begins really in 1940, before the United States has even entered World War II. Britain and the United States reach an agreement, Churchill and President Roosevelt, without the input of their legislatures, reach an agreement where the United States provides 50 World War I-era naval destroyers in exchange for the right to build and maintain U.S. bases for a period of 99 years in British colonies in the Americas, a string of British colonies from Newfoundland on the east coast of today, what is Canada, it was a separate colony at the time all the way to British Guyana, today's Guyana. Um, the U.S. was able to create military bases and in the process expand the territory that was claimed and controlled by the United States, not just onto these island colonies, but also the oceanic territory between the east coast of the United States and these 
colonies, this string of islands, essentially expanding the borders of the United States in ways that the United States had not been able to expand since the conquests of 1898. Well, on top of that, by the end of World War II, the U.S. was building 112 bases per month around the world. In terms of money and manpower, how is this even possible? That's a great and important question. The Destroyers for Bases deal of 1940 was just the beginning. As the U.S. entered World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. military began building a growing number of bases, basically everywhere that it could, as fast as it could. And this, again, was on a global basis. How did this happen? U.S. financial resources, of course, made it happen. The U.S. military's technological prowess, which grew as the war progressed, made it happen. But also the labor of people in the global south made it happen. People in colonized territories who were often paid a pittance, often working side by side with U.S. military personnel. But it was really armies of people in the global south, in colonized territories of the remaining European empires, that allowed this scale of military base construction to take place which ultimately allowed the U.S. government and U.S. allies to defeat Nazi Germany and Japan, Imperial Japan, and the Axis powers. Without that labor, without the construction of these bases, it would have been near impossible, I have to think, to wage the war that the United States and its allies ultimately did. Well, and after that, these bases served as uh, sorts of checkpoints and places where troops and planes and vehicles and weapons and ammunition could really be stashed around the world to allow the U.S. to serve as the world's police. Was there any thought by the U.S. to hand over these bases to the U.N. after World War II to avoid having to spearhead this idea of policing the world? There was originally, early in World War II, it was something that President Roosevelt wanted his military and diplomatic officials to investigate and plan for. But as the war progressed, U.S. military leaders in particular, and increasingly Roosevelt himself and some of his closest advisors, increasingly wanted to hold on to as many military bases as possible in the post-war period. And they made very explicit plans for holding on to as many bases as possible and the right to build bases in other places in the interest of effectively controlling the world in the post-war period. There were many motivations behind this, desire not to fight another world war, but also economic interests, desire to dominate the post-war economic competition in a whole variety of ways, including there was a clear realization that international air travel was going to be an increasingly important form of economic competition in the post-war period, and also that international air travel would be an important conduit, important way in which international trade would be practiced in the post-war period. And the ability to control military bases, which could also serve as civilian airports, was critical to dominating post-war trade and the post-war international airline competition. 
and airline industry. So what we see is at the end of World War II, rather than closing all the bases used to wage the war, rather than giving up these bases, the military officials, again, in particular, some diplomatic officials, State Department officials, wanted to hold on to as many bases as possible in as many places as possible. And they were not entirely successful. There was a very significant demobilization of the U.S. military and closure of bases. But a permanent infrastructure, or to now, permanent infrastructure of military bases abroad was maintained by the U.S. government after World War II and became a foundation of U.S. power during the Cold War and to this day in ways that ultimately I I argue were quite deleterious to the United States and to the world, including because this infrastructure bases made it just all too easy to wage yet more wars, wars that proved on the whole incredibly disastrous for the countries where the wars were fought, beginning with the U.S. war in, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, a prominent example of war made possible by uh, an infrastructure of bases in East Asia but a whole series of wars that were made possible by this infrastructure of bases established during World War II and then maintained throughout the Cold War and to the present. Eisenhower famously warned of the military-industrial complex, but did he do anything to ebb its spread in terms of numbers of bases popping up worldwide? Eisenhower was, of course, intimately familiar with the military-industrial complex and provided a very important warning about the power of the military-industrial complex at the end of his presidency as he was passing the presidency to President Kennedy. But he indeed fueled the power and size of the military-industrial complex by spending many tens of millions of dollars on the U.S. military and on bases, specifically throughout the 1950s building on the expansion of the U.S. military and entrenchment of the U.S. military around the globe that began in the Truman administration that really took flight during the Korean War when we saw a dramatic expansion of about 40% the total number of U.S. bases abroad during the Korean War. But importantly, this is an expansion in the, the number of bases and the U.S. troop presence, not just in East Asia, not just to fight the Korean War, but a a major buildup in Western Europe. This is when we see bases established, or a growing number of bases. There were bases that that remained in most parts of Eastern Europe, excuse me, Western Europe from the end of World War II. But in the early and mid-1950s, we see a dramatic expansion in the size and infrastructure of bases in places like Germany and Italy, Spain, Britain, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and other parts of Western Europe as part of a global growth in the total number of bases worldwide and a growth in in the size and power of the military-industrial complex writ large. Chapter 15 is titled, Did the Cold War End?, Obviously, the Berlin Wall falling and the fracturing of the USSR led to base closings around this country and also around the world. So despite the fact that there were all these closings, why was spending on bases continuing to grow during this period and beyond? It's a great question, and and part of the answer is certainly the 
entrenched power of the military industrial complex, a power that grew over the course of the Cold War. Indeed, at the end of the Cold War, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, we did see, like at the end of World War II, a, a significant demobilization, a drawdown of the total number of U.S. forces, a return of U.S. forces from bases abroad, especially in East Asia and Western Europe, a return of those troops to the United States. About 60% of the total number of U.S. bases abroad were closed in the first three or four years after the end of the Cold War. But a very significant infrastructure of bases remained, and that required very substantial continued investment in maintaining these bases and maintaining the troops that worked on these bases, that served on these bases. Budgets that have only grown in the post 9-11 period. And that's why I asked the question, did the Cold War end? Because if you just look at the infrastructure of US bases following the fall of the Soviet Union, following the end of the Cold War, one would think that very little ended, very little changed. Again, I think this is part of the way or a good and sad example of how bases don't, base and bases abroad in particular, don't just enable war, but make war more likely that the having an infrastructure of bases around the world made it just all too easy for U.S. leaders to choose war in the post 9-11 period, to wage war across the greater Middle East, as well as in other parts of the world as part of the George W. Bush administration's war on terror. And this is uh, one of the very sad, and sad doesn't even begin to capture it, but one of the dangers of maintaining bases abroad in, in such numbers and, and such breadth. Well, and to your point, while the overall numbers of bases were going down in the 1990s, if there was a region where the numbers of bases was increasing, it was the Middle East. How did this affect al-Qaeda's growth? Yeah, the U.S. presence in the Middle East was substantial during World War II, but in the post-World War II period, it decreased. And uh, as the Arab-Israeli conflict grew, the U.S. was actually forced to leave most of its bases in the greater Middle East. But what we saw is after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 and the Iranian revolution in 1979, the U.S. begins a base construction boom in the Middle East, and this begins under President Carter and expands only further under President Reagan. And then with the 1991 first Gulf War against Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, we see a further expansion, an even more dramatic expansion in the number of U.S. bases and the number of U.S. troops in the Middle East, specifically in the, in the Persian Gulf region. The presence of U.S. bases and troops in Saudi Arabia in particular, in the Muslim Holy Land, becomes a major irritant to many Muslims, but most importantly, to one named Osama bin Laden. The presence of U.S. bases and troops in the Muslim Holy Land in Saudi Arabia became one of his justifications for the attacks of 9-11. And we saw prior attacks on U.S. military forces in, in Saudi Arabia, and Dharan, Saudi Arabia in particular, which one of the ironies I discuss in, in the story in, in the book is that the U.S. base in Dharan actually dates to the very end of World War II, 
And it's a base that was actually built by bin Laden's father. Bin Laden, <laughs> as, as many know, was a, a wealthy son of an industrialist whose company built the U.S. base in Dharan, a base that was expanded during and, and, and after the 1991 Gulf War, and that in addition to other U.S. bases and other troop presence in Saudi Arabia and, and across the Middle East became a major source of anger for al-Qaeda, but for many others as well. Obviously, what the U.S. has done in the Middle East since 9-11 has garnered a lot of headlines. Is there an aspect or front of modern U.S. military expansion that doesn't get enough attention? Well, there many, I would say. And this was actually something that was surprising over the course of my research and writing, and as someone who, who teaches now at an American university in Washington, D.C., as someone who my consciousness certainly, you know, since in the second half of my life, I guess I'm 45, and so about half of my life has been lived since 9-11, that consciousness and my experience has been shaped by these post-9-11 wars. But for the vast majority of people in the classes I teach, and for about a quarter of the U.S. population now, they have no memory before 9-11. And in many cases, especially the younger folks, have very little understanding of why 9-11 happened and why the wars that followed, followed. They sort of treat them as part of the landscape. But there's actually, you know, especially in recent years, as the U.S. public generally has turned against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and against endless wars more broadly, there's been increasingly little attention to these ongoing endless wars beyond, you know, a soundbite from President Trump periodically. But I, so I, I would say that the, the generally the human damage that these wars have inflicted on people from 9-11 to the present has gotten far too little attention. I'm glad to say there's been attention to the deaths and injury suffered by U.S. military personnel, the impacts on the family members of U.S. military personnel. But generally, this has, has tended to come at, in some ways at the expense of, or certainly has not been paired with, attention to the deaths of Afghans and Iraqis and Pakistanis, Libyans, Yemenis, who have suffered in far, far, far larger numbers than have suffered in the United States. The death toll in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, and Yemen is about 50 times the death toll of U.S. military personnel. Somewhere around 800,000 people have died in, in five countries alone since the U.S. began waging war in Afghanistan in 2001. And I think in the United States, there's very little recognition of this death, of this destruction that our tax dollars has enabled. There's been very little reckoning with the damage, the human catastrophe that these wars have represented. And that 800,000 figure that I just mentioned is just the number of people who've died through combat in these five countries. The actual total number of dead is surely far, far larger and probably numbers somewhere between 3.1 and 4 million people dead, including people who've died through indirect means. For example, the destruction of public health infrastructure in Afghanistan and Iraq, 
the destruction of hospitals, of schools, of food sources, of, of clean water supplies has led to yet more deaths that far exceed the number of deaths through direct combat. So this has certainly been one major overlooked aspect of the post 9-11 wars in my mind. But another is the total breadth of the post 9-11 wars, the total breadth of the global war on terror. And one needs only look at, at West Africa and, and Central Africa and as East Africa as well, all the way to Ethiopia and Kenya and Somalia, as well as Yemen just across the waters from East Africa, to see that the, the global war on terror has touched so many parts of the world. U.S. forces have not been as numerous in Africa, for example, but especially in Somalia and again, just across the sea and in Yemen, the U.S. has been profoundly involved in those wars, but has also been involved in counterinsurgency wars in places like Cameroon and Chad and Niger, as well as Kenya, Ethiopia, for example. These wars also have had terrible humanitarian impacts. This is not to say that the United States is responsible for all the death and destruction of these wars, but the global war on terror has been, in a whole variety of ways, shares responsibility, deep responsibility for the effects of these wars. And it's a responsibility that, again, I think very few people have been aware of, have debated, have discussed, have reckoned with. Despite everything you just said, David, are there any reasons for optimism that things can and will get better in a way that's also beneficial to the U.S. long term? Yes, absolutely. I think there there are many reasons for optimism. I think uh, President Trump's talk of of ending the endless wars is actually a good sign in, in many ways. President Trump has expanded the size of the military budget to unprecedented dimensions. The U.S. military budget now rivals that at the height of the Cold War. And I think we have to ask, what enemies, what possible enemies justify this level of military spending compared to uh, the Cold War when the United States was facing another nuclear-armed empire in the form of the Soviet Union? The Russian power, Chinese military power, pale in comparison to the power of the Soviet military during the Cold War. The size of the U.S. military budget is totally out of proportion to the threats actually facing the United States. And I think we can, you know, we can look at, at the COVID pandemic and, and see the way in which U.S. military spending did nothing to protect the United States from, from COVID. Indeed, the these huge rates of military spending, $6.4 trillion, $6.4 trillion on the post-9-11 wars, on the global war on terror since 2001. All of this spending has come at the cost of investing in things like pandemic preparedness, have come at the cost of providing universal health care to everyone in the United States such that they could seek treatment, proper treatment, as well as preventative health care in the face of things like the COVID pandemic. But the fact that President Trump is talking about ending the endless wars, the fact that he is criticizing the weapons manufacturers for benefiting from these endless wars, which they absolutely have, is a sign that he recognizes and a growing number of people recognize that the U.S. public has turned against war. The U.S. public no longer supports large ground invasions of Iraq or large-scale, now decades-long wars in Afghanistan and, and around the world. 
So that alone, I think, is a, an encouraging sign. I think there are, there are other encouraging signs, people across the political spectrum questioning why the United States has so many military bases encircling the globe, whether these bases are in fact protecting the United States, whether they are providing peace and security to the globe as they as so often has been claimed without evidence. These are encouraging signs. And I think there are a growing number of people recognizing that, again, to go back to President Eisenhower, that spending $6.4 trillion, for example, on the post 9-11 wars is, along with military spending more broadly, a theft. Uh, again, this, these are words that come from President Eisenhower said, you know, every dollar that is spent on a bullet or a bomb on a gun is a dollar that's not spent on butter, is not spent on protecting human needs, is not spent on health care, is not spent on schools. There are people increasingly realizing that our money, our taxpayer dollars have been stolen and that we need to dramatically reorient our priorities toward taking care of human beings rather than pursuing wars. Very well said. He is David Vine, professor of anthropology at American University and the author of Base Nation, Island of Shame, and his newest book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. David, thank you for the time today and thank you for this great book. Trey, thank you so much for for your time and for the great questions and conversation. And thanks to you for listening today. You can hear all of our episodes by going to booksonpod.com or search Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod.